Welcome to Frontline. Welcome to episode one. My name is David Gill. And I'm Andrew James. And today we are going to be talking about the world of risk management and safety planning. In terms of the structure of this podcast, we are going to be looking at several different areas related to the subject. We're going to try and kind of keep this as a consistent approach throughout the podcast. Let's begin. Let's talk about why we are looking at this subject. So, Andrew, over to you. Your thoughts on the world of risks and safety. I think the main things when we were discussing this, it was about not in terms of a compare and contrast, but to really just to look at benefits and negatives to each particular approach and to explore what they can offer practitioners in any given circumstance. My previous experience is mainly around risk management as opposed to safety planning. So that is where my area of knowledge, I wouldn't go as far as to say expertise, but certainly my area of knowledge lies, whereas you're a bit more au fait with the idea of safety planning. So it's something, it's an interesting area to go to kind of discuss and explore. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think when we're talking about risk planning from the world uh, that I work within, I think it's almost getting a bit of a bad rep that we are trying to rigidly plan and manage people's risk. But I think what it, for me, what it is about is trying to look at what tool works best for what service and how we are approaching, how we're supporting people. Because I think risk has its place, particularly, again, my background working in criminal justice, there are certain levels you have to have in play to, to look after people. But when we're talking about engaging and supporting people in, in less structured ways, I do think sometimes we can be a little bit too focused on the risk and how we try and manage something in some ways that can't be managed, mm. which makes sense for us to maybe start to explore a safety first approach. I think this is the danger with anything is that we see an idea and we think everyone should adopt it. Whereas I think what it should be about is maybe trying to find a balance. Risk management in criminal justice, especially with my background for probation, it's vital because you're trying to prevent worst case scenario. And that is certainly not your sole focus. Obviously, there are other focuses to manage. You're, you are obviously looking at client safety, uh, public safety, and trying to make the balance between the two. But your main issue and your main focus really is to prevent future serious incidents. And that is a purely risk management focused area. Absolutely. And it makes complete sense. And I think when you look at how risk is is managed, you know, we, we classically think about a risk matrix, you know, likelihood of it happening versus how serious that could be, you know, likelihood versus impact. And it works so well in, in some respects, particularly in industry where there is there has to be strict ways of managing risk. You know, you think about health and safety and, and you know, you think about how we have to manage things. And I think Again, you link that into public protection and supporting individuals. It makes sense. The problem I, I think I've, I've seen in the, the, the field I work in, particularly in the world of support, is that we've classically used risk management to work with anyone. We come in, we, we work with an individual, we use the information we have about them to try and create a level. And I've always found this interesting, that uh, we often quantify people we work with into low, medium and high in the world of support. And I don't know about you, but that feels just way too subjective because me and you, imagine we were colleagues working together 
and I'm about to go on annual leave. So I write this risk plan of someone you're going to be working with. And I'm like, high, high, high across the board. You then pick it up, meet the guy, meet the guy, and you look at it and go, this isn't high. Why is he written that? That's that for me. That's medium, maybe even low. So I think there's, I think that's also the challenge of the subjectivity of this and how we try and manage that. I think that's a very, very important point to raise because risk management, as you said, the idea of mitigating that risk is the, the, the main driver behind it. And it is very important, especially when you're working in an environment in probation, again, talking from my own experience, where you may be working with people who could potentially be of a very high risk to the public or children or whichever area it may be. So the, the, the factoring of that is very important. But there is a huge level of, I guess, subjectivity uh, attached to this. Um, I can recall that personally working, a manager who I used to work with insisted that people who were arrested or uh, convicted of drink driving should immediately be classified as medium risk, regardless of circumstance, regardless of age of, of conviction, regardless of how many convictions they had. I could totally understand their perspective because the potential damage is huge. We all know it's a life-changing situation if someone, God forbid, is struck by a drink driver and the potential for serious harm is huge. But also, if you have someone who is, say, for example, in their 50s, early 60s, has no previous convictions, you are, in my opinion or my view, slightly hard-pressed to convince me that that person is a medium risk based on the fact that you have a very limited area and very particular circumstance where that can occur. But then again, that's the difference that you face in this sort of approach in the, the subjective nature of what you see. When we talk about experience, I'm you know I'm thinking about some of the places I worked with, and don't worry, anyone listening, I will never mention those places. Um, <laughs> but there was one place in particular that stuck out for me that the the risk tool that we had when you were engaging with the client for the first time was it was a document that must have been about twenty pages long. That was a range of tick boxes, and you just went through. Do they have this risk? Yes. Do they have this risk? Yes. And it was just a tick box exercise. And at the end, you had like a really simple plan. How do you manage that risk? And yet you just ticked a box for about 100 different domains. And you suddenly then had to use all that area, very binary choices. They're either a risk or they're not to decide where that person sat in terms of their risk. And I don't think anyone really used that information. It was the very definition of a tick box exercise. And I think that's been the challenge with this is when staff have potentially used documents like that for many, many years, they become frustrated with the whole process and they don't see the value of it. And I think that's the important part of it. This is why safety for me is such an interesting subject because it's bringing value to how we manage the world of risk and safety. You've raised uh, another excellent point there in the downsides of a risk management approach. And the main downside that I can see in that, obviously I fully understand why it's utilised. The one major downside that it has is that for the actual client themselves, it's done completely independent of them, generally. Um, it's done basically completely on past actions, past behaviours, past ideas, and generally can be done, especially when unfortunately it's adopted in a way that could be considered not best practice. It can be viewed as quite a cold document that doesn't take into consideration the individual. And it just takes very binary circumstances. Is it this? Is it that? And doesn't consider the actual person. I also think about uh, another example many years ago. This one has always stuck with me because I think... When someone has been working with services for, for some time, whether it's statutory services or voluntary services, is unfortunately a lot of the information follows that person around. It mm -hmm. almost sticks to them like 
like Velcro. This is their history. This is their risks. And like you say, Andrew, it's all about that past experience. Mm. And I think about this one person who on the referral form, it was like highlighted. Somebody even got a pen highlighted. High, very high risk arson. And like, I don't know, about, you, you know yourself, arson in the world of risk management, it heightens everything. And everything was about this, this everything. The focus was on this one area. And this was a gentleman that was probably, I want to say probably mid to late 30s. Mm. And thankfully, at the time, I was with a colleague, very experienced, and just sat this guy down and just said, we've got this information that says about arson. Do you want to tell us a bit more about it so we can understand and support you better? And what was really interesting at the time, everyone was, you can't ask that. You can't say that. That's not what we do. We have to manage that. We're the professionals. But what was really interesting was that that, that guy said, oh, he, he almost laughed. He said, um, that's been following me around for years. He said, what happened when I was 18? I walked past a police officer and I was a bit of a mouthy 18-year-old and he was giving me a bit of banter and I was giving it back. And I had a cigarette and he was annoying me, so I flicked it. And it just happened to fall into a bin and, and set a tiny amount of the bin on fire. So the police officer nicked me and that was on my record. And everywhere I've always been, everyone has talked about how they manage this arson risk. And, the, and luckily, my colleague just turned around and went, well, it's irrelevant. We don't even need to manage that risk because it's not a risk. But mm. yet, if we hadn't have explored that, he might have sat there for ages on his own trying to figure out this plan of what he must do and then have managed to read through it to make sure. But this was all stopped because he just took a step back, asked this gentleman in a nice, informal way. There was no accusations. It was just tell me a bit about this so we can support you better. And actually, the guy laughed. He opened up. He got support in a really positive way. Just the smallest, slightest bit can make an ostensibly cold tool, give it a bit more life and give it a bit more structure. Because we all know and we've all worked in situations where it's like trust, a reputation. It can take years to build, seconds to destroy and takes, again, years to build back up. One of the key principles of trauma-informed care is around collaboration, is understanding the people we work with, particularly in the support world. They're the experts. They know their lives better than anyone else. And it's about taking a step and just utilising their expertise. The professionalism comes from using the information they give us to then work with them in a collaborative approach to think about how we can best manage that individual. And I just think that's why this is so important, because like I say, the world of trauma-informed care is forcing us to maybe look at these ways of, of doing things, maybe think about looking at it in a slightly different way, which I guess brings up the fundamentals of safety planning. Tell me, Andrew, your thoughts then. So if if you were working with an individual, you talked about this collaboration, what would this safety, how would you want to build up a safety plan? How would you approach it? What sort of questions would you be asking people? I'd want to know about what their effectively know their life story, know what their situations were, know what their triggers were, what caused problematic behaviours, what caused, if they were aware at least, what caused crisis events to occur or what behaviours to look out for before crisis events occur so things can be intercepted before they reach the point of no return. I'd want to look at anything in that area so you could immediately work with someone on the basic points of what you were trying to get to them whether it was housing support whether it was drug support whichever area it particularly was 
But then if you saw a change in presentation, if you saw a change in just general behaviours, you would then know from general discussions with them and, again, the collaborative approach, Hmm. you would hopefully then see and be able to put into place whether this was behaviours you need to be concerned of because they may present as future crisis events or whether this was a just general change in behaviour that you could then ask about, explore and look at it in different ways rather than immediately think to escalate on something that maybe doesn't require it. We're keeping the focus on what needs to be talked about and what needs to be part of that person's support, which I guess one of the areas I'd, I, I'd like us to discuss about is the language that we use. Because I guess when we're thinking about risk, and again, your experience of risk management, the language is often very clinical, very cold, very, very much focused on the factual side of things. Yeah. Whereas I think safety planning allows for a little bit more of a evidence-based response. I'm not saying it's a definitive yes, a definitive no. I'm saying the evidence presented in front of me, this is the uh, best response that we could come up with. And I think the reason why I, I think this is so important to discuss is that when we talk about, when I have talked about uh, safety planning, planning for services and frontline staff is that they often turn around and are worried because some of that really strict language is removed and people are then worried about what's it going to mean for me? Am I not covering my own backside? Are things going to fall down? Is it going to come back on me? A lot of the language used in risk management is very judicious. It can, even just using the word judicious, just goes to a way to explain it. It can, it can often use... Perfectly illustrated there. Yeah, perfect illustration of the point. It can, it can often use language that isn't immediately accessible to a lot of the client base. That, and that's not meant in any sort of patronising way at all. It's, it's just you may deal with people who've, who have been ostracised from uh, mainstream education or have had difficulties with uh, numeracy and literacy who may struggle understanding more in-depth language and the problem with risk management is quite a lot of the language is quite heavy and it can be quite a daunting thing to get into it and especially again because it's done mostly out of view which then gives it an extra layer of 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 treacle to kind of push through which is going to be even harder for you to understand so the whole thing about the language for safety planning is to open that up to make it a lot more instantly accessible and the benefit of that is if you if a lot of the time if you are completing these tools with the client with you next to you any sort of confusions or disparities can be immediately ironed out at source to get better answers rather than you making assumptions based on the limited information you have about a completely separate sentient individual. When you talked about these plans created in in isolation and we suddenly talk about maybe bringing things in, uh, you know, making it more collaborative, I think for me, what's really interesting about this is the the world of support planning. You know, we you, you go back many years, we've called it action planning, support planning, care planning. Ultimately, it's about how to plan someone's support or treatment in a certain way. And I think for many years, support plans and risk plans had to be done. You assessed an individual, worked out what their needs. And from that information, you had two things. You had a support or a care plan that was done in collaboration. Then you had your risk management and risk management plan that did in isolation. I think what the world of safety planning does is it almost brings it into the support plan because this was something I could never quite get my hand around. How how on earth can we plan for someone's support if they're not really aware of how we're trying to manage their risk? And I think if we suddenly start to see this, I think it has an added advantage of, again, more collaboration. It links in with your support because we're managing safety in this way and it helps feed into your support. 
Let's be perfectly honest as well. It helps support workers because there's much less paperwork to fill in. And anything where you say to someone less paperwork, they're like, yes, please. And it becomes, for me, more readily reviewed so that we don't see it as like a risk management plan where it's, right, we review it every six weeks. Has anything changed? No. Very static review points. Instead, this becomes almost like an organic tool that you just review maybe on a weekly basis as you see people, because it's not a really heavy endeavor. You just, you know, you need to just quickly review, add some notes on whatever it may be. It almost fits into everything, even like your case notes. Your case notes can start to reflect what you are saying in all these plans as well. I think anything that we have that brings it all together, the better. Because the more you are having to write this bit over here and this bit over there, the more it's getting lost. So I think, you know, bringing it all together, potentially for me, is one of the biggest wins we can have of this. I do feel like I have to point out that risk management isn't the only approach that uh, services, operation services take. There is an attempt and an aim to blend these two together to blend risk management and the safety planning approach together. But I guess my point when I'm talking about probation services, or at least certain criminal justice sector services, is that the main focus will always, I guess, will always be to a degree public protection. So out of the two, risk management seems to always take the precedent. And I totally understand that. And there is very good reason for that, given the environment. But there are certainly benefits to be gleaned from a bit more of a lean towards the safety planning approach that could be taken in in certain circumstances to soften that approach and to perhaps get better engagement with uh, with your clients. It's like many things in this world. It's trying to find that balance, isn't it? Mm. Find that balance between, like you say, in, in, in classic probation, criminal justice, it has to be risk. But actually, yes, risk has to be there to ensure that person is safeguarded the work that the public are safeguarded but if we can incorporate elements of safety into that while still managing their risk maybe just maybe that's that could be a really really big win which i guess if we're thinking about it that way let's look at it in the other way if we're talking about the world of support and so like i said i'm seeing this quite a lot in in, in housing services and uh, substance misuse services as well of contemplating taking this safety first approach and seeing this and, and trying to normalize it and standardize this. Not everywhere, like we say, pilots around the country. What do you think then could be the pitfalls of this? I think the main challenge I see with this sort of approach is, well, I'd say it's, it's a two-strand approach, really. First of all, a lot of it depends upon the strength of the individual worker and the training that they've had. If they haven't been sufficiently trained or don't feel sufficiently trained or empowered to do this, it will unfortunately be it will unfortunately go through in a in a lackluster or in a below par way which will not unfortunately get the desired effects and may cause some sort of disenfranchise of the person you're working with the other side to that is the potential that certain clients could view or could use this as a way to manipulate the system or manipulate the situation for easier softer outcomes for themselves but i guess it's like any like we said before this isn't about finding a perfect approach. With any approach, you're never going to get a catch-all. But what we are, what we're always trying to search for, the holy grail is to try to try to pick up as many people as possible, trying to lift up as many as possible while keeping the cracks as small as possible to make sure that as few people fall through as possible. Fundamentally, one 
one of the things that safety planning and a safety first approach can do is really challenge the amount of uh, crisis events that we can see in services. You know, people getting angry and aggressive often through simple communication breakdowns. Or again, services not always utilizing a trauma-informed based approach where someone can come in, communication breakdown, shouting, screaming, uh, people become upset very, very quickly. And what could have maybe been addressed fairly early on by being aware of that person's safety and trigger points and maybe talking to them in a different way. Because that wasn't followed, it means that unfortunately that person then escalates and you hit this crisis event. So I think the world of safety, what that can do is really start to, to de-escalate those situations, limit these crisis events. In particular, I've, I've seen a couple of services in particular use them as pilots for specific areas. One service I know of in particular who had quite a lot of aggressive incidents in the reception areas. So they took a, first, a safety first approach with their clients and they basically said to them, tell me your triggers. What are the triggers when you're in this environment? What stops you from engaging? What is it about? And it was amazing that uh, this, this service in particular talked about how the safety plans not only became safety plans, but also came a way of getting feedback from clients. They learned very quickly that their, their reception area is way too sterile, horrible. It was triggering for a lot of people, re-traumatizing for a lot of people. And what they did was they put plants, simple thing, put a bit of greenery in there, played some nice chilled music in the background, put a lot more fun uh, things on the wall and just made it feel more welcoming, more supportive. And it was amazing. The amount of aggressive incidents just dropped off because people felt safe and secure. So this for me is another advantage of safety first approach. Not only do you manage that safety well, but you can also start to see themes, other themes that are going on in your service, maybe look at it through someone else's eyes and start to pick up on things that you might not have noticed or maybe you had noticed, but perhaps hadn't given the level of uh, care that you, you you thought it needed. For me, it's about empowerment. If you give someone a stake in the process, if you give them a reason to care about the process, if you make them feel part of that and like they have an actual voice in the process, more often than not, they'll care more, they'll engage more, and they will be more interested in what happens. So it, it is all about making sure people have a stake and feel empowered by the process. And if they do they will hopefully become more engaged in it. There's a lot of people out there that have maybe gone through different services and been getting support for many, many years that never actually had the opportunity to sit down with someone and say, this is what would make me feel safe. In the past, no one's really asked me this before, because as you say, people do it on their own, behind closed doors, and I just get told I'm high risk. And I don't I don't even understand what high risk means, but yet I get told this all the time. I, as you say, having someone involved in that approach to feel that empowerment, to feel that collaboration, and to understand it's all about safety, there's no surprise that they are all key principles of trauma-informed care. I think at this point, it's worth bringing in our first guest. So what we're here to do on the Frontline podcast, as well as have our own discussions and hear your feedback, like I say, through emails, social media, every time we run this podcast, what we are aiming to do is get a special guest. And that can be anyone. If you are interested in being a special guest, please do get in touch. And for our first special guest, we have someone who's here to talk about how they have approached safety planning in their service. Welcome. Uh, we have this week's guest. And so I will begin with, who are you and where are you from? 
Hi, my name is Anthony Vaughan, and I am the Head of Pie Operations and Therapeutic Services for the Warwich. The Warwich are the largest homeless charity in Wales, and we've got, last count, I think we've got about 70-odd projects across the whole, most of the country, about 500 staff, maybe a little bit more than that now. And my job is to sort of assist the organisation to achieve its strategic priority of becoming a truly psychology-informed organisation. So this week's episode is about risk and safety. I guess my question to you is, why is this subject important to you? Initially, when you think about risk and risk assessments, they are an essential tool that allow us, they allow us to do our jobs, don't they? Without them, we couldn't do and we probably couldn't support the people that we work with. On a personal level, it's important to me because when I started this job right at the beginning of the pandemic in April 2020, I was given a sort of a list of tasks to work on. And one of the ones right at the top was to look at and introduce a more psychologically informed risk assessment policy and procedure to the organization. When this is done well, it helps to empower services, doesn't it? Because if you do this correctly, then it gets them to see themselves as more than just somebody who presents with risks, as somebody who perhaps has strengths within them to, to be able to deal with the issues that they present with or that that, that that affect them. It also can help reduce discrimination for them, I suppose. If you, if you do this well, and as a service user moves on from you, should we say, or you're sending off referrals with a, with a, with a good collaborative risk assessment or safety assessment, as we're going to talk about shortly, but that, you know, that, that gives a true picture of a service user and, and the issues they present with, then it, again, it's, it, reduces the sort of stigma and discrimination they face. We know he's quite dangerous. We know he's quite dodgy. But if you've got a true representation in documentation that you're sending out, then it's it helps people you know, to, to understand that. Doing the work that I've been doing, I, I spoke to one manager who gave me an example of a service user that they'd had in their service for about 18 months. And their referral information came over and said, two to one working only. So this person could only be worked with with two staff going there. Um, so for the 18 months or so that they'd been within that service, that's what had been happening. When they finally sort of pulled that apart properly, all it really was, was the actual risk management was, if he'd had a drink, introduce yourselves because he'd got a little bit verbally abusive to somebody he didn't know who knocked the door. But then for the last 18 months, that has come across as he must be two to one work with. So it reduced his opportunities for the for appointments and stuff while he was in that service. It also, as referrals were sent out for other agencies and other accommodation, it, it had reduced his opportunities there as well because people were seeing him as a risk. And that was, again, that was a third party who'd written two to one working just because they didn't introduce themselves and this person got a little bit abusive when they'd had a drink about it. So get the services' own points of view on these things. Uh, so what have you done so far then to, to implement this into your organisation? Really, I sort of started looking at this in earnest, I guess, in, in probably late December 2020, so just before Christmas and that first pandemic. I started really thinking about this and looking at you know, the risk assessment processes and forms and policy and procedures that we had in the organization and, and pulling them apart, I guess, and, and looking at them um, and seeing them for what they are, I suppose, which is essentially a process or procedure that's taken from the world of health and safety. The, the language within them is about a sort of bricks and mortar process, really, isn't it? You know, kind of dehumanizing language about, you know, the severity, the likelihood, harm minimization, risk presented with. So it's looking at what we had now and, and how they're used. And then thinking, you know, if I'm thinking of a more psychologically informed way of doing something like a risk assessment positive procedure, what what's a good sort of psychology or a good bit of understanding to use for that, which kind of led me on to looking at trauma-informed care more closely and, you know, those 
principles of safety right there at the top of them. So I was thinking of how do I make a procedure that makes people feel safe, physically, emotionally, mentally safe from the start of a process? How do I think of a procedure that promotes choice? How do I think of a more collaborative procedure? How do I think of a procedure that can help build trust and build strong relationships from the start? And how do I think about a procedure that is more empowering than, than what we do? I then thought about, you know, safety and safety plans, did a lot of research around those. And I thought they're, you know, really good strength-based empowering collaborative tools, safety plans, but generally in the, in the where they're used currently is, you know, in fields like mental health or, or, or suicide intervention or crisis intervention, domestic violence intervention, that they, they tend to be safety plans on the individual. So it's me and my safety and what I can do about it, which is exactly what we want for this. But also thinking about risks assessment and risk management, I suppose we have to think about the risks to other people or the safety, you know, how somebody, how the individuals we're working with could affect the safety of others. And, and there wasn't really a safety plan out there that I could find that, that did that. So essentially I had to design, I guess, design my own version of a, a safety plan. And so what we did was we've introduced an, an initial safety assessment, if you get, if you like, where, you, you know, staff talk with the service user about the stuff that comes with them from referral and their own safety issues as, as well as the other things that can affect how they can affect other people's safety sorry and then from that we build collaborative strengths-based safety plans telling me what the issue is you know what is it that's actually affecting your safety or other people's safety and when you know when is this happening what are your triggers what are your what's going on when the safety issue is happening and then you know really sort of pulling that apart in what can you do to cope with things at the moment and what can we do to help you cope with things and, and same for what could you do to reduce the impact on other people and how can we help you yeah that's kind of where we got to i had to rewrite the policy and procedure as well so we've now got a brand new service user safety assessment planning policy and procedure and we said you know over the next six months basically that it's if you get a new service user in start using the safety assessments and over that period of time as risk assessments come due for current service users if you could move them over to a safety assessment, sort of trying to training for managers, you know, sort of face-to-face -face or online face-to-face -face training for managers about how this is going to work and then produce some videos for the staff on the processes behind this, why we're making this change and how it's going to work, which brings us up to sort of August where we've kind of switched off risk assessments and risk management plans. Everybody's now using safety assessments and safety plans. I think there's about three and a half thousand of them on there for, you know, when you consider we've got 500 staff and a few thousand clients, that's, you know, not too bad at the moment. So I'm quite pleased with that. Now, now we get to the phase you know, is really looking at this and how we evaluate this now over the next 12 to 18 months or how we evaluate how effective these have been. What would you say is, has been your learning from this? I suppose one a big piece of learning is it's never quite as easy to make changes like this as you think it will be, I suppose. And also maybe not best to try and do it in the middle of a pandemic. I guess one of the big pieces of learning that I've taken is this seems like a really big monumental change, but actually it's not that big a change when you look at it through certain lenses. And I suppose I'll give you a little example. Something I say in, in my training, risk is the chance or probability that a person will be harmed or experience an adverse health effect if exposed to a hazard. Again, back in that mm. health and safety speak world. But then safety is a state in which hazards and conditions leading to physical, psychological or material harm are controlled in order to preserve the health and well-being of individuals in the community. So even though this seems like a monumental change, when you think about it in those terms, it's not really. And what, and what I mean by that is if you do risk assessment well now, as it always should have been back when I started in the organization 15 years ago, risk assessment was about 
a collaborative process with a service user where you talk about the risks that are in their lives and that they present and you talk about the triggers and you talk about what's happening when these things and what we can do together to minimize or completely you know get rid of those risks then really the information within a safety assessment should be pretty much the same as what's in a risk assessment what we're looking at here is is almost a mindset change less of a box ticking form filling exercise it's a it's a conversation about safety with the service user that remains ongoing as well which is something that some can, sometimes can happen in risk assessments doesn't continue really. For our listeners then, if you could give them any advice or top tips, what would you boil it down to then? I suppose, first of all, you know, one of our values as an organization is is about being courageous. So I guess I would say be courageous. If this is, this is something you want to do and you, you think is needed, then push ahead with it really. You know, it, it is, you know, it, it, the idea of risk and risk management, getting rid of that is quite frightening for some people, isn't it? But be courageous about around that. But also equally have a really good look at what you've already got and what you're already doing. Because it could be that if you do risk assessment well now, then it works really really well and if it is a collaborative process and if service users are involved and and they're giving you their thoughts feedback then equally perhaps you don't need to change you know if you're doing it well now then then perhaps the change isn't necessarily needed one of the things i did initially actually was uh, we have a shadow board within the knowledge of of current service users so before i really got going on this process i i went to the shadow board and i said look as as service users who've had risk assessments maybe done to them rather than carried out with them, this is what I'm thinking. These are some of the safety plan ideas. These are, you know, what what do you think about this? And they you know, sort of universally said, "Oh yeah, we got this. This I think this is something you need to pursue. This is I think this would be a better way of doing things." And then I guess sort of 12 months later, when I've almost got my done my homework and got my finished product, if you like, I've got back to the shadow board and showed them again and said, you know. What do you think about this? And again, universally, it was like this is a better way of doing things. We like this. This this is something that we 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 think will work. If I could change one thing, I, I you know I did do a couple of consultations throughout this period, but it was the depth of the pandemic, wasn't it? And I and I don't think I really got enough feedback from staff within the organisation on you know on my changes that I was talk, talking considering and changes you know through the policy and all that sort of stuff. You know, not that I didn't get any, but but I think. If the pandemic hadn't been there, I would have I would have done more of that. I have a pie steering group, if you like, made up of about fifteen current staff and staff, you know, within you know HR and other departments. So I was collaborating with them throughout this process. Thank you very much, Anthony, for some wonderful things uh, to do with risk and safety. If people would like any more information about yourself or your service. Uh, where can they find you? We've got our main website, thewarwich.com. My email is Anthony with a H dot Vaughan V A U G H A N at thewarwich.net. Thank you very much for your time and uh, really good stuff there. Thank you for having me. Okay, welcome back. So for me, the good practice is about understanding what is going to work best for your service and the people that you work with. Just because something new comes along, like safety planning and safety first approach, if you are working in the world of public protection with high risk individuals, chances are this approach on its own isn't going to work. However, applying bits of it, elements of this can have a really positive effect. I would also say that if you are working in a more of a supportive community service, 
that engages people for a variety of different issues around perhaps mental health, substance use, uh, housing, homelessness issues. Safety planning can be really, really beneficial. My advice, my top tips, I always advise people when, when they're considering this approach is always think of it as a stepped approach, almost like work your way back. Imagine someone is at the top of a staircase and when they're at the top of the staircase, they're at that crisis point. That's when they kick off. That's when they get angry. That's when they disengage. And for me, it's always about taking a step back. What gets them to that step? Right. Well, what gets them to the step before it? And the idea is you want to get them right back to step one where they're calm and collected. And when you know all the steps that are going to get them to that crisis point, you can almost plan something for each stage. So if you've got, let's imagine you've got someone who's um, got a history getting violent towards staff in reception areas. If we just try and manage that, say, right, every time he gets violent, we'll call the police, do X, Y, and Z. It's going to be the same thing every time. Person will kick off. We'll respond in a punitive manner. He might no longer be able to engage with that service. He'll have to come back and start again or go to a different service. Whereas if we look at it in a different way, that stepped approach, what gets him to get angry in the reception area? Find out all those trigger points every step of the way. It might be, I hate the reception area. It's too sterile. Right, well, what can we do about that? It might be if uh, the receptionist doesn't acknowledge me straight away, I don't feel valued. Right, what can the receptionist do to to acknowledge you? Uh, I don't like it when the, the room is too full. It brings my anxiety up. Right, What again, is it a case of you standing outside and texting your work so they can come and grab you? The idea is you want to listen to everything they tell you. Step it up. And so that the very top, you've still got the... I guess the punitive responses of saying, look, if you do still get angry and kick off, we still have to protect everyone and we may have to take these steps, but we are going to do everything we can on that way to ensure that that never happens. That means we're managing the risk by thinking about safety. The main feature, as you've already set up there, is collaboration is, as I've said before, it's about making that making that client feel empowered and part of the decision-making process. You need to make sure that they feel like they've been listened to. Yes, you will You very well way have a file of, of events that have happened in the past of some may be considered quite, quite worrying. Those need to be mitigated and need to be taken into consideration. But that is not the be-all and end-all, and that doesn't necessarily mean that that is how that person will present on every single occasion. If someone feels part of a process feels like they have a voice within the process, feels like they have a value within the process, there is always room to manoeuvre. Again, it's so vital we we talk about this. And as we say, as we go, go along these podcasts, we are naturally going to pull uh, the world of trauma-informed care into this because it's fundamental. It's everything that we do. And what com people who've experienced that complex trauma, who've been shaped by their trauma, their brains are hardwired to respond to getting angry, upset, kick off quicker and quicker and quicker because it keeps them safe. And if we have tools that don't recognize that, we are always going to be stuck in this cycle of seeing someone, trying to manage it, not being able to do it, and ending up having to, to, to utilize maybe punitive responses. It's not an easy thing to do as a practitioner. It does require um, a certain level of skill are definitely at a high level of training but it is something that if you have the training available to you if you have the patience and the emotional strength to do that the benefits that you can get out of the clients that you work with is huge 
if you've got other areas in, embedded in your, your teams as well, things like reflective practice, where you regularly sit down with your colleagues, you talk through difficult and challenging cases, you talk about experiences that you've had with people you work with, safety plans could be utilized as part of your reflective practice. You can talk about how you've managed that person's safety. You can talk about what's worked, what has been a challenge, what hasn't worked and what could be improved on. It almost fits in with everything else. It becomes part of a more organic process about not just supporting the individuals, but thinking about our own well-being, think about how we can constantly develop and think about how we can be the best support worker we can. I think that brings us towards the end of our very first podcast. We do hope you uh, will get in touch with us. You will find all the details regards to our social media, our email addresses on podcast feed. I just want to say thank you very much, Andrew. And thank you, Dave. This has uh, been a, an interesting first start, but uh, I hope that we uh, get to do this and get a lot better as we go through. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get that, I'm sure. We I really appreciate you listening and we do encourage you getting in touch and we will see you on the next episode of Frontline. Frontline.